welcome back to this week's OIS podcast. Today, our host, Dr. Paul Karpecki, chats with surgeon-turned-innovator Dr. Michael Gertner. He developed an FDA-cleared neurostimulation device that brings dry eye patients to tears, literally. With that, turning it over to you, Paul. Hello, and welcome to the OIS podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Karpecki, one of the hosts for these podcasts, and I'm honored today to have a, a, a great individual that we're going to interview that has come up with a very innovative technology that's helping a ton of dry eye patients, but it's fairly new, I bet, to a lot of you. And today's guest is uh, Dr. Mike Gertner. Mike, nice to have you here. Oh, thanks, Paul. Thanks for, thanks for having me today. Uh, we're honored to. I think our, our listeners are going to be fascinated by this because although we know a little bit about neurostimulation and the timing's really good about learning more about it right now, I think that there are going to be a number of people that are not aware of Olympic ophthalmics or the I-Tier 100 and, and really want to kind of know more about it. But I want to start by getting to know you a little bit for our, our attendees, our, our audience. And uh, if you don't mind, you know, Mike, can you walk us through your, your personal background, like where you grew up? You have siblings, uh, family life, a little bit about how you even uh, got into medicine. And I think you were a general surgeon for a while. And did you did you practice that? And uh, and then we'll get into how you went to the entrepreneurial side afterwards. Sure. So I was born in uh, New York City and grew up in a town called West Lawn Branch, New Jersey. It's about a mile from the beach. It's claimed the fame. It was the state, the state of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, it also became uh, Monmouth University. Uh, there's lots of great Revolutionary War history and, um, and and George Washington, for example, in the Battle of Monmouth. There's lots of great stuff there. Uh, I have a brother, a younger brother, a year year and a half younger. He lives in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He's a he's a nephrologist, and I have a sister who lives in Paris, and she's a, a physicist there. Personally, I have five kids. Three are my own, and two are stepchildren. Uh, they range in age from seven. That's my son. Ten, twelve, and then. Uh, two, I have two older kids as well, uh, 19 and, and 20, 18 and 20, I should say. Uh, I live in Menlo Park, California now, and also part-time in Issaquah, Washington, uh, where the company's based and where my wife lives. Awesome. That's amazing. So, it's amazing with five children, you have time to also, you know, <laughs> be the CEO and lead a company uh, at this yeah. state, plus all the FDA development. Uh, I'm always amazed by people who can accomplish so much. And that's part and parcel why I started out in general surgery. I did practice for a number of years. I finished my residency uh, in 2004 uh, at UCSF and then practiced uh, in the Bay Area here at a number of places, uh, including um, uh, Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, which is the trauma center in San Jose. And then, but all, all along, I've been inventing and licensing a lot of uh, products to uh, different companies, and so it was a natural transition. It wasn't wasn't really a jump, but my family is really the reason why I ended up moving towards uh, product development, entrepreneurship, uh, and leaving general surgery. It was just it was too difficult to do all that as well as be a general surgeon. Yeah, it's a tasking role. I mean, at all hours, all times, uh, you know, it really isn't any yeah. set schedule. I, I can't imagine, and so really a great decision because you have bigger picture in mind in terms of family and then also in terms of your talents and your ability not everybody can make that leap from 
a surgeon or a physician into entrepreneurship? Has it is was it so for you? It was a natural shift, or did you have to learn stuff? Did you did you go through any sort of business stuff, or was this just inherent in in your passion to begin with? Yeah, so it's more or less natural. Uh, I started out at, before medical school. I was a engineer, bachelor's and master's degree in mechanical engineering, and so I was always sort of a tinkerer always interested in inventive process, innovation. There were much less formal pathways back then uh, for that type of thing. Uh, so I, I sort of did have to learn a lot on my own and, and sort of navigate uh, the course. I probably do things a little bit differently now um, with all, you know, there's a lot more infrastructure and things set up for physicians that want to become inventors and vice versa. So, but anyway, yeah, so there was a lot to sort of navigate through, but a lot of it was, was natural. And then also moving out to the Bay area for my residency at UCSF, that obviously had a, a big impact and facilitated a lot of this. How did the, uh, how did the transition go from, you know, I can understand being a general surgeon, you tinker with a lot of things, a lot of developments there, but then, then you went into the eye care field, which is a very different field. Yeah. Was that just right place, the right time? Was this something in neurostimulation you'd already been been looking at? How did that transition occur? Yeah, good question. So after my residency, I came down to the area here, Palo Alto, Menlo Park. I was working with um, Tom Crummel, who's a, a pediatric surgeon, who's the chief of surgery at Stanford. We um, sort of brainstormed um, a program called Surgical Innovation Program to help folks like myself, actually, that are physicians that want to understand the innovation process, product development process. We started a program called the Surgical Innovation Program. But through that, I met a lot of people, a lot of different doctors at Stanford that were interested in different types of products. And um, ophthalmology happens to be obviously a very innovative field. And so there are a lot of ophthalmologists that I, I came across um, and spoke to. And, and, and so that's sort of how I learned a lot about ophthalmology. Um, in fact, if I had to do it again, I might have gone into ophthalmology as opposed to general surgery, just because of all the great innovation that's happening, the mindset of a lot of doctors. So the so moving from general surgery, certainly, you know, a big leap alone. And I know you tinkered in that area, came with a lot of things, were already fairly entrepreneurial and innovative, uh, given, you know, your background in that. But then to get to the field of ophthalmology, you're, it's another leap in of itself. How did that come about, Mike? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Thanks, Paul. So after my residency at UCSF, I uh, came down to the Bay Area, down to the peninsula in the Bay Area, and uh, was working as a general surgeon. And I was also working with uh, Tom Crummel, who was a chief of surgery at Stanford, um, pediatric surgeon, great pediatric surgeon and uh, innovator himself. And we brainstormed on a program called the Surgical Innovation Program, where we could bring in doctors and, and train them in, in the process. Um, so that they didn't have to have all the, the sort of stumbles and roadblocks that um, that, I, that I encountered. Uh, and through that, I met a lot of different doctors at Stanford and, and in the area who were interested in, in innovation. And a lot of those doctors happen to be ophthalmologists. And ophthalmology, just it, it's just a, such an innovative field. There's, there's medicine, there's surgery. Um, you're doing great things for patients. In fact, if I had to do it again, I might even um, have chosen ophthalmology as a, you know, as a profession, just because of all the, you know, the varied aspects. It's a great mindset of the doctors that are, that are involved in it. And it's very, it's kind of a very focused field, but uh, in any case, that's how I met, that's how I wound up in ophthalmology. Neurostimulation, on the other hand, is pervasive outside of ophthalmology everywhere, cardiovascular, um, orthopedics. And so I knew a lot about those different types of 
technologies and, and, and clinical applications. And so um, it was very interesting to me to apply it into, into ophthalmology. Uh, and when I saw some of the work going on with Truchier, and also I also dry eye sufferer myself, um, it really seemed like a great area to um, pursue. Absolutely. It's fascinating how we do get into areas we, we have some inclination to somehow, maybe subconsciously, we move into things that conditions we have. And, but I, I love that background. So you touched on a little bit, you know, Truetier had been the first uh, neurostimulation technology to enter the field of ophthalmology and uh, that whole eye care. And, and it was, you know, in patients that was used, it worked extremely well. I still have patients who, for a while, had asked for it. Unfortunately, we were blessed to have, you know, the FDA approval of the eye tier 100 from your company, Olympic Ophthalmics. Hey, why don't you explain a little bit for those who aren't familiar with it of how uh, the eye tier 100 works compared to say original true tier yeah. and role in dry eye disease. So, yeah. So I was, um, so I, I have dry eye. I uh, used true tier and I liked it. I liked the way my eyes felt afterward. And I was disappointed to hear that it might be, you know, being taken off the market. Um, and so at that point, I started to look for a different type of, um, you know, a way to do the same type of stimulation, but obviously to get around the, the patents or coexist with the patents of Allergan, and then also perhaps make it a little bit uh, less invasive. So that was sort of the impetus to move forward into a neurostimulation product myself. And, uh, and I will circle back on one topic here that made me want to be like kind of first line in product development, and that is this concept where, you know, a company like Allergan buys a product from an innovative company before that, and then they don't develop it. That happened a couple of times to me, including one time with Allergan as well uh, for, for an obesity product. And so it, it, that sort of led me to want to develop products myself and commercialize myself so they'd actually get to patients because now true cheer may never see the light of day again. Um, but in any case, back to how this is different. Um, this is the iChair 100. This is actually the second generation product that will be on the market uh, hopefully soon uh, it's more of a connected device um, it can it communicates with an app um, we can do the prescription through the through the app um, so there's a lot of um, kind of connected features that um, brings it up into 2021 but the key feature is uh, this oscillating tip a lot of people say well isn't it just vibration can i use my toothbrush and you can try to use your toothbrush and you can probably list the effect one time. Um, if you try to do that 30 seconds, you know, every day for a month, it's dangerous. I mean, it'll, it'll it, your bone will be bruised. I've tried it myself actually, and you'll, you'll get abrasions and things. I wouldn't recommend it. Can you use other massagers on the market? Maybe um, it's, uh, they, they usually they generally have a much broader base and they're a lower frequency. So this has the right frequency. The tip is specifically designed to uh, stimulate the external nasal nerve, which lies right below the bone and kind of comes out from under the bone and then spreads out um, over your nose and gives sensation to your nose. Prior to this device, um, there hasn't been any function ascribed to that nerve other than sensation around your nose. And so we were, we figured out that you could actually use it to, you could actually stimulate that nerve and elicit the same response as True Cheer was uh, eliciting inside the nose using electrical stimulation. That's kind of the background of the invention. So again, it's the, it's the, it's the very um, specific tip, the edge, the vibration that it's a frequency that it's vibrating at, and then also the, the fit underneath the bone. And so that it doesn't, uh, so that you're optimizing, you're maximizing the force only to that nerve and there's no collateral damage 
um, that you're doing it. And of course, we have six months, one year of data of patients using it up to you know, a thousand times during those six months um, with, with, with no abrasions and no uh, other types of side effects related to the mechanical piece. I've seen that too in my clinic. I've had great success with it. Seen it work in patients with, uh, you know, dry eye of all types. Uh, those with, you know, meibomian gland dysfunction, where it does help stimulate the meibomian gland secretions. I've seen it with mucin deficient dry eye components for the goblet cells, and of course, aqueous deficient patients, including Sjogren's syndrome, KCS. So it seems to work at all three levels. And it's not like a reflex tear. It truly is allowing that igniting the the basal reflex of tears. is very natural, but it seems to be all three. I've also seen good success in patients who have had nerve issues with dry eye, whether it's neurotrophic forms or others. Um, so given that, and when I when I certainly have seen it clinically, and when I mentioned it, people are really saying, wow, I didn't know about that. What are the plans for creating awareness and, and growth for the company? And I know a part of it is just, you know, the process of the next generation, which will come out mm-hmm. in a few months or so, but what's the plans post that in terms of awareness? Yeah. So up to now, uh, there's been really two things that have been um, slowing us down, I would say. Uh, the one is um, there's there's a 30-day restriction on the prescription. Uh, this is a bit of a surprise to us um, and, and became a logistic issue. Um, most patients are requesting and doctors are prescribing uh, more than a month. Uh, and so currently, we're sending a new device every month, which obviously is not sustainable. And this issue is, was compounded a bit by the next issue, which is the pandemic and a lot of the associated supply chain issues. So you know, we're not Apple, we can't order a billion motors. And so um, they obviously get preference. And so when the pandemic started, all the, a lot of the companies were, were stockpiling electrical components and they're just not available. Um, and so now that's, uh, it's kind of lightened up a little bit. Um, we, we had some workarounds and so now we have that issue resolved. And we're also, we also have our second generation device, uh, which is it's uh, going to be um, submitted to FDA very shortly. So so, Michael, what, what's the, um, I guess, interesting about the 30-day utilization, and I guess that makes sense and based on the study is proposed and things like that, but has that been or what have been the biggest challenging challenges to developing a new technology like this and, and bringing it to the market? Yeah, I, I would say first it's financing. Uh, there's just so many nuances to it, and that's an area I really had to learn. Uh, there's no really, that's not a natural, you know, kind of innate type of thing. So there's a lot of financing issues that I'd learn. Uh, and, and lots of money doesn't necessarily mean success, but it can increase the odds, I think. In some cases, actually, it could probably decrease the odds as well. But um, overall, especially in this environment right now, not having a lot of funding can can really, it's, it's hard to compete for talent. Uh, you don't really have a lot of backups. And so I think um, financing is difficult. And you really have to choose your, you know, the right partners. And try to give you know, some advice to anybody, I mean, choose your right, choose the right partners. I mean, that's just kind of life, just in general in life. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, fi- both on financing, engineers, um, consultants, lawyers, everywhere along the line, you really want to choose the right people. Uh, so I would say financing is probably uh, the biggest challenge. Just a very close second is regulatory. If you're going for an FDA indication like we did, um, and I think that's the right way to do it. Um, there are a lot of, there's potentially a lot of unknowns. Uh, and on the one hand, I learned a lot from FDA. A lot of their questions were, were great. Uh, you know, really helped me make the product better, think about it um, harder. They came up with a lot of 
um, potential issues that I hadn't thought about. And so that, that part was great. It, you know, sometimes it can, that over-regulatory piece, uh, the, you know, the over-regulation can actually, um, you know, be a hindrance too. We ended up having a 30-day um, label in our product. And the only way to really make this a 30-day device is to have it turn off at 30 days. So we, so it turns off at 30 days. And right now we are sending a new device uh, to patients every month. And so yeah, that's obviously a logistic issue, especially um, in the pandemic. Uh, it's been very difficult to manage that. Uh, well, a lot of that will be you know, solved with a new device, which is connected um, through an app and we can download prescriptions. And also a lot of the supply chain issues are being resolved now. Um, so I think by the end of the year, we'll be able to really roll this out uh, in a large way and market it and and, and you know, get the word out about it. You know, back to the, the regulatory issue, I see there's there's a lot of products in the field, in the dry field. Uh, this is a challenge as well. There's no label. They, they claim all kinds of things. Um, and they're, they're not really, they're kind of approved. They're not really approved. They're really, you know, working the fine line between marketing unlabeled claims and things. And so uh, I think that's been related and, and a third challenge for us. Sometimes I'm surprised that doctors are recommending a lot of these um, products because they're they're just there's not safety data. There's not really good efficacy data. There's not good monitoring for if there are safety issues or not. And a lot of them may, may be unsafe. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, these are all great learning uh, initiatives that can help anyone who's kind of in this spot, you know, thinking about moving. I'm sure that we've got listeners who are entrepreneurial who may have an idea um, and, and trying to figure out how to make the leap, um, you know, to uh, the next level of entrepreneurship with, with their idea. Any recommendations you might have for them other than, you know, you talked about financing and all these extra things are so critical, which is so valuable, but, you know, is it is it something you transition to? Is it something you just have to make the leap to, or is it, you think it's probably more variable than that? For starters, I actually published a paper um, uh, about 15 years ago when I was working in the, at Stanford called, um, so you have an idea, now what? Um, you can start there. It's got a lot of um, practical advice and, and thoughts. Um, I can probably write about three or four more chapters uh, on that now. So, so that's a, that. Yeah, that that would be um, a place to start. I like to say now, and I already mentioned, you know, choose the right partners. But the other thing is, if something looks simple, it's probably hard. Okay, and if it, if it looks hard, then um, look for something simple <laughs> because it's probably not the right product project. There's so many demands right now, and technology is changing so quickly that if you're if you have a five or ten year horizon for a product, it's likely to be irrelevant in five or ten years. And similar with investors and things, you know, they're going to want you know more near term uh, type returns, and so. Uh, start with something simple and just expect it to be a lot harder than you think. Great insights. That's fantastic. Well, maybe we can get some a link to that in the show notes or something along those lines. I think that'd be incredibly valuable for so many of the listeners. Hey, if there's you know one thing that someone in our audience uh, could do to help you at this stage, uh, Mike, what would it, what would it be? Yeah, so I, I recommend um, a broad application of iCheer. Our, our label, our FDA label, is uh, not limited to any type of um, a specific patient, it's, it's, it's broad. It's, you know, essentially create tiers in adult patients acutely. And it's over 30 days, as I mentioned before, uh, we have a clinic demo device, uh, can be used. A lot of doctors are using actually almost like a part of the physical exam to, you know, kind of look at, at tier production potential, let's say, or just to, you know, to, to try it in every patient or a lot of patients broadly, you know, as opposed to saying, well, this patient's on five different types of treatments and they're not really responding that well, let's try iCure. Um, that's probably, 
uh, not the best place for it, actually. It's probably much earlier in the paradigm. So think of it on the front end uh, towards um, artificial cheers as, as you know, potentially even a first line uh, treatment. We have, a, we have a trial going on right now where we're taking patients that um, don't have a diagnosis yet um, of dry eye. They just complain of burning, itching eyes. They think they might have dry eye. Um, and then the, this is the first line uh, of therapy for them. And uh, so, yeah, and, and it's amazing actually to me how many patients are in that bucket, <laughs> how many potential patients are in that bucket in their 20s with really severe myobian gland disease or aqueous deficiency disease. And they're doing things like pouring water on their eyes, things like that. Um, so they see our they see our advertisement for the trial. They get into the trial and they they start with eye care. And so you know it's potentially a more of a first line type of um, treatment. It's got the right cost structure for that, uh, and also it's um, it's 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 easily accessible. And we can do a lot of work um, online, right? I can train anyone online uh, to do this um, treatment within a couple minutes. And so it's very it's uh, I think a very easy front end um, usage. Uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know right away. Makes sense. And you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, what could be a better beginning than an artificial tear when you can make your own natural tears and stimulate them? I mean, that always is going to win out. And that really is the ideal place to do it. Um, and we know many patients, you know, fail on artificial tears and have to move on. This would be, you know, a much better beginning for them. Um, and that makes a ton of sense. And, and I think that is kind of a good place for neurostimulation. Well, Mike, thank you for joining us today and sharing your story, your insights, the path you've taken, uh, developing incredibly successful technology, and now even the next phase that may develop um, of that technology. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, I would say uh, you can email me anytime. Um, I'm online almost 24 hours a day, uh, itier100 at gmail.com, and, and I'll respond uh, as soon as possible, within a few hours probably. You're awesome. Mike, this is fantastic. Great insights yeah. for sharing so much of your story and so yeah. many great pearls in, in developing a product and going from physician to entrepreneur. Uh, really an excellent interview. And, and thank you for taking the time to be part of it. You bet. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our iTunes channel so you get the latest ophthalmology insights. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at ois.net.